This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, I'm chatting with Adele, who is an intended mother, um, and she's going to tell her own story about that. But she's also a wills and estates lawyer. So we're going to have a chat about the importance of getting your will done uh, for surrogates and their partners, and also for the intended parents and for donors to make sure that your estate goes where you want it to go if something happens to you or your family members. I'm going to introduce Adele and get her to have a chat about her story. I'm chatting with Adele today. She is possibly a future intended parent herself. Um, So we're going to talk about her story and how she came to surrogacy, but we're also going to talk to Adele about uh, wills and estate planning for people who don't accept surrogacy arrangements. So I'm going to ask Adele to give us a bit of an intro for herself. Adele, we've known each other for a few years because we've worked together as lawyers. but uh, tell me, how did you get to this point where we're thinking about surrogacy for you and your family? Okay, wow. So um, surrogacy was never, it was certainly never a term that we ever used at home. Um, and I, we started the um, family journey, I guess, um, probably, oh, it'd be nearly five years. We, we tried to get pregnant for two and a half um and and we were looking at ivf so i I suppose we'd we'd never looked at surrogacy but we we were looking at ivf um and because we we just kept being told there was actually nothing wrong with me and um but we just couldn't fall pregnant so um luckily we did actually fall pregnant um before we started the ivf journey and um and we were we were so lucky to have our, our beautiful son lincoln who is now 20 months old um and he is our our biological son um so what happened though was actually that um, the the birthing process itself did not go to plan um, as much as we all have this this idea of what your birth should be like. Um, I had always been terrified of natural birth, and so um, I probably I was probably I'm happy to admit a bit pig-headed, and um, when speaking to um, obstetricians and. Um, from the beginning, I think I was six weeks pregnant and I just went, well, I'm not having a natural birth. I, I have to have a C-section. Um, and I, I think looking back, they probably did try to um, steer me away from that and sort of, oh, come on, but there's nothing actually wrong with your body. You can do this. Um, and I just, I, I, my, my fear was probably, um, it was just so blown out of proportion maybe um, that I just went, nah, not even considering it. How dare you? It's my body. I will do what I want and I'm having a Caesar. The Caesar itself uh, went very well. Um, there, there were no issues, um, uh, but I never actually recovered. So after the C-section, um, the pain just uh, got worse and worse. And, um, and three days in, they had no idea what was wrong with me. I could hardly move. Um, I was delirious. I had a temperature. Um, they then worked out pretty quickly that I, my bowel had actually shut down. Um, and my bowel had burst. I was quite literally dying of sepsis. And, um, and, and we were very, um, very lucky that they were able to get a surgeon um, to the hospital that I was in that, um, that saved me. 
that night. So what I ended up with was very unusual because um, you don't hear of many people that give birth and then end up with something that's called an ostomy. Um, so an ostomy, you probably have heard of people that have a, a bag that's attached to the outside of their stomach and um, and your basically um, your waste, your, your poo um, is diverted um, out of your stomach and, um, and into the bag. And so I, I literally um, went in for surgery and woke up um, I suppose it actually probably was three days later after I was out of ICU that I actually knew what had happened. Um, but I, I woke up with a bag um, and, and had to live like that for eight months with a new baby. Um, so it was, to say the least, incredibly traumatic. Um, so, so I guess, sorry, it's such a long drawn out story, but um, this is sort of where we ended up at surrogacy because we, we have now been told that as a result of what happened to me, um, that yes, I could fall pregnant again, but the risk of actually carrying a child all the way through to delivery is so high um, that if I ended up with, so I'm at, I'm at massive risk of bowel blockages, which um, if, if they can't fix it, um, can actually kill you. Um, and um, I've also got a lot of abdominal adhesions, so there's lots of bits stuck together inside now. And um, so as your stomach obviously grows, they, they just can't, um, can't guarantee that I'd survive. So we have been told that we, we could go down the surrogacy journey if we want to. Um, and so I suppose that's, that's sort of how I ended up at looking into surrogacy. Um, yeah. And now we knew each other before all of that happened. So we, I guess we hadn't really talked about surrogacy other than me having been a surrogate. So we've had some different no. conversations in the last 12 months yes. about what that might mean for you. Mm. Um, I guess one question that some intended parents might have, intended mothers in particular, who have suffered birth trauma and might be considering surrogacy, is what's the process been like for you so far in terms of managing your trauma and healing as best you can from what happened? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because there's actually, um, or certainly my experience, I should say, I, I felt that the um, support network was offered by the, the hospital and professionals was actually really poor. Um, even even dealing with something like what I went through, you know, once I was well enough to leave hospital, um, I, we we were sort of sent away with a couple of booklets and went, someone will be in touch. Like it was, it, it was really tough. Um, even getting in to see a psychologist, which I put off for a couple of months, and I, I looking back, shouldn't have. Um, you know, we nothing nothing was easy trying to get the help. It, it was so difficult. Um, I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD, which I guess is perfectly understandable um, given what happened. Um, but even that, like I, I had no idea of what was happening to me. I, I left hospital and um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't function as a, as a person anymore because I, I, the, the events of what happened were just constantly playing over in my mind. It was, it was like a, a movie that was just on repeat. Um, you, you couldn't think properly. You, you, you just couldn't do anything, you know? And um, I, I actually ended up sort of finding my way myself. And I, I guess um, found that people on um, Instagram had, had lovely groups, uh, support groups, um, both for birth trauma and also for people with ostomies. 
um, navigating their way through this minefield of, oh my God, how do I even, how do I look after myself with this? Um, and then I suppose the birth trauma was a whole separate thing because a lot of people, that was also really hard to connect because nobody, I, I couldn't find anyone that had been through a C-section and ended up with what I had. Um, so I guess what what worked for me was joining the birth trauma groups. Um, there's some great ones on Instagram. There's some also even better ones probably that I found through Facebook. Um, and just talking to people that have got had similar experiences. And um, we even ended up sharing phone numbers and and you know met up a couple of met up with a couple of women. Um, and that that has been my saving grace. You, you find that even the, the psychologists or certainly the one that I dealt with, um, they try their best, but they unless they've been through it themselves very hard to to actually relate to what you're going through um yeah mm, i so do I, think there's a lot of value in that lived experience being uh, um, perhaps even more important than seeking professional help but perhaps mm. alongside getting professional help should be seeking support from other people that have definitely experience. yeah and don't wait like that that would be my biggest you know learning from it is is you you think I've got this, I can deal with it. Don't wait. Just even if you start by just talking to a psychologist, um, which is what I did and I probably cried more than I spoke, um, you, you just need, you need to do something because it, it ate away at me for three months before I finally decided to try something and I didn't realise how bad I was. And, you, you know, the, the healing takes a very long time but it does get easier. And throughout all of that, you've also got a husband that's obviously had the trauma of what happened to you and a newborn to look after. So yes. what was the first 12 months of Lincoln's life like? Um, poor Lincoln hardly saw the sky. <laughs> he, was, he was inside all the time. We, we hardly went anywhere. And I mean, this was even pre-COVID. So the poor kids had a pretty sheltered <laughs> first 20 months. Um, we, we actually, um, my husband uh, didn't work for the first probably two and a half months. Um, my mother also didn't work. Um, we moved, had to uh, get rid of our place and we moved in with my parents because I couldn't look after myself. There's, there's I suppose, a lot of things you don't think about with a surgery like that. Um, I had to learn to walk again because, you know, through the surgery, um, they'd cut through all the muscles and, you know, and then I was bedridden for so long that um, you don't, you don't realise how quickly the muscles in your, in your body just go, oh, well, you, you don't need us anymore and they stop working. So, um, that took an awfully long time. So they, my husband and my mother pretty much looked after Lincoln. Um, oh, I, I, I would say they did most of the care for the first six months. Um, when I was then able to actually um, do things with him, which again was quite traumatic um, at, at the six month mark, I, I felt like a real person again. Um, and I could actually go out in the house with him and we, we did lots of things. And then all of a sudden it was time for reversal surgery. So they, they plug it all back in um, is probably the best way I can explain it. And, um, and whilst that was nowhere near as traumatic as what happened, it was, it was getting your um, mentally preparing yourself for willingly putting yourself back on the table um, for a surgery that, you know, you, you shouldn't have had to have had in the first place. So that, that was very difficult. I feel I mean, I know I'm a good mother, but um, but I do feel like my 
poor child really was, he wasn't neglected by me, but at the same time, I feel like my thoughts were never with him as much as they should have been. Um, so after, after the reversal, because I was doing really well up until then, um, and, and certainly the birth trauma um, advocates that I had met, they, they really helped me prepare mentally for it. Um, and we even had a little, um, what I like to call my poo party. Um, so we had, a, we had a party three days before to um, prepare for it and sort of doing a thank you. Everyone, I know this sounds odd to people that don't understand um, the world of ostomies, but if you have one, you name it. So um, Steve, he was Steve the stoma. And we had a little party for Steve and um, saying thank you. He'd done, you know, done a great job keeping me going for the last eight months. Um, and that actually really helped me mentally prepare, you know, that trying to be so positive about everything. Um, after I had the surgery, I didn't know how I was going to feel, but I certainly didn't expect what happened, um, which was that I lost my identity. I think I had spent so long becoming um, a part of that community so that I could find myself again, that when I no longer had the ostomy, I then felt like, well, hold on a second, who am I now? Am I now just this person that survived this horrible birth? Like I, 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 I really lost my way. So that was probably really hard for my family to deal with as well, because I think they were on a completely different journey, which was even for my husband to an extent. Um, but once the reversal had happened, it was okay, well now we can't see the trauma physically. So she's fine. We finally finished the, the trauma. The birth is over and, and we're good again. And, um, and so I had nobody really to, that could relate. It, it, was, it was really difficult. My husband, I shouldn't say that, my husband was amazing and he never left me. Um, even when I was, was in hospital the entire time, he, he was my rock. Um, and he, he really is the closest person to, to the one that gets it. Um, and even he's not there. <laughs> so... Um, but Lincoln, Lincoln throughout all of this was just a trooper. Like he, he has come out of it. Um, I, I feel that he, he's just now got such a strong support network around him that he otherwise wouldn't have had. He knows my parents, you know, so, so well. And they're so lucky because they, they got to live with their grandson for the first, we lived there for a few months after the reversal. So um, he's, he's really got a beautiful, strong network. Um, and, and now I think he's got an even stronger mother. So it, it, what kills you? What kills you doesn't make you stronger. Well, that's right. And, and what I've observed <laughs> is just how amazing and strong you are. I actually felt myself getting a bit teary when you told me about your poo party because it does feel like that sort of thanks, thanks Steve, for what you did. You kept you, Steve kept you alive. And that's mm. an amazing thing. Let's sort of celebrate that. Did that help you process the I guess the the wonder of what had happened and also deal with what was coming absolutely I can feel myself getting teary now and I haven't cried <laughs> for a very long time um I when it all first happened and I think this is this from what I've heard is very normal um you you actually can't even look at it I mean the 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 idea of because it in reality, what it is, is part of your intestine is um, sewed to, to your abdomen. So it's, it's you know, you, you can see it. Um, things that you don't realise uh, until you've got one is that not only is it there, it moves. So, I mean, that is, you know, because it, it, it is processing your, your food. Like, it, it's, it, you know, it's a living, working organ that, that is moving. And, um, and quite, it is terrifying. It, when you first see it, you are 
and I certainly fall into that category. I was disgusted by my body. Um, I was terrified to look at my body. It, it, was, it was really confronting. So it took months and months to, because they won't let you out of hospital either until you can actually um, look at it, change the bag yourself. And that all, that is, it, it takes strength. Um, I think what got me out of there was my husband one day just went to me, you, are you sick of being here? And I said, I hate it. I just want to go home. And he just went, well, you realize that until you can do this, we're stuck here. And I think that really just got me. I, I had to get my baby home because you parents are not supposed to live in a hospital. Um, so once I did accept it, I actually, I almost did, did the flip and became so proud of the fact that, wow, I've got this thing that nobody else has and mine saved me. And, you know, I even did. So I have a, an Instagram page called um, Overnight Ostomet. And on that page, I then, um, everyone sort of followed the journey from, and, and it's quite clear if you go back, you know, from the very first post um, to, to the last, um, or to more recently, the process that I went through, I treated it like a diary. And, and that really helped my recovery. Um, and, and by the time you get to the poo party, you can really see the, the journey that I've been on, the, the journey of acceptance um, is just so, so clear. And, and there I am with, we had little poo cupcakes made, um, you know, the little eyes and all sorts of things. We had balloons that looked like poo and, you know, um, we went, we went right out and the family, even though they never, they never actually really said very much, they, they were all there and they all supported me. And I think it was, the, the, there was a huge um, disconnect between we don't, we don't understand how she's dealing with this or why we have to have a poo party, but we're going to support her because she's been through hell. So, um, but it really did help. It, it, it was, it was the only way I knew how and it worked for me. I also um, printed up photos of um, our family. So Trent, my husband and, and Lincoln and all the beautiful things we did. So the month before the reversal, I dedicated to, um, basically doing all, all these beautiful fun things. So we took the baby to the zoo and, you know, did the aquarium and, you know, all these beautiful things. And we had photos of all of that um, that we printed. And then I put it up on the, the hospital wall so that when I came out of surgery, they, they were there to support me, whether they were physically there or not. It was, it was knowing this is what I'm doing this for. I have to get better because I've got to get out of here and be the mother that I always wanted to be. So huge hiccup but we, we got there, we got there. Yeah, amazing. That's, I guess in some ways it's such a lovely story, notwithstanding that that came with massive trauma because you yeah. did handle it with such grace. And I loved watching your Instagram and the process that you went through and the storytelling of... <laughs> Thank you. Because, I mean, it must have been confronting for you. I think it was mm. confronting for your family. And even me watching mm. you with photographs of your your new ostomy was confronting, mm. but so educational yeah. as well. Mm. And I guess in, in some ways I became less afraid of my bodily functions because I was able to see you talk about yours so openly yeah. on Instagram. Amazing. Yeah. I will link yeah. the, uh, the overnight ostomy um, Instagram on the post so that people can follow you there as well. So the other thing we were going to talk about is actually not so much to do with that, but more to do with wisdom planning for parents and parents and donors for 
going through surrogacy or donor agreements. Um, how did you, well, look, you tell me about that because I don't do wills. How do we end up there? Yeah how, do, yeah, how do we end up there? And what do people need to know about when they're doing, entering a surrogacy agreement? What does that mean for their estate planning? Sure. So I, I guess, um, and this, this all links back to the, um, yes, I, I am a, a mother and a birth trauma advocate and all those things, but I am also a lawyer. And so when, when um, starting to think about the idea of, okay, well, if my body can't do this um, and have another baby, how are we going to do it? We, we then obviously, um, the natural progression seemed to be surrogacy. Um, and so I poured myself into that and, and met up with Sarah and, and picked your brain as well. Um, and, and so I, I actually ended up at, well, how does this actually tie into what I do? And is there anything that I can actually offer people in the surrogacy world? Um, so I started looking into it from more of a, a legal perspective. And, and what I mainly do is wills, um, wills and estates. Um, and so I, I, I was actually really surprised to learn, first of all, that well, lots of people don't even don't worry about doing um, wills, uh, entering into the surrogacy journey. If they do, they're probably not maybe seeing the right person um, sometimes because um, there are clauses that really need to go into your wills to ensure that the, the if we can call them the sorrow bub maybe, um, to ensure that if something happened to either the intended parents while the surrogate was pregnant, um, or if God forbid something happened to the surrogate while she was pregnant, um, that or, or during the birthing process, which was obviously, um, you know, obviously on my mind always, um, that would this child actually end up with an inheritance from their intended parents? Um, the scary part was that I, I learned that until parentage is actually transferred, um, and I, I am obviously only talking about Australian legislation here, so until parentage is transferred, um, the problem we have is that the child may, if the will is not prepared correctly, the child may not actually receive inheritance under the intended parents' uh, wills because they're not actually classified as their, their child. Um, we've also then got the issue of, well, you, you, the, the child is on the birth certificate of the surrogate and if the surrogate died as a result of childbirth or maybe even not that, but um, within then, from, from then and, and, and up to when parentage is transferred, if something happened to her, um, then this child might actually be considered her child. And then we've got, you know, she's got children of her own, but this child might also get, be entitled to inheriting from her estate. Um, the, the concept is, um, it, it just blew my mind. So I guess I, I then started to think, okay, well, what, what actually is there out there that, um, that potential surrogates and, and um, intended parents, even donors really, um, are being told about, about this. And I couldn't find anything, um, which, which I think I may have found one thing, you know, through a Google search, which even, you know, but there, there was just nothing. So I thought, okay, I, I, need to, um, I need to take this upon myself to put what I've learned into um, an ebook and, um, and launch that on our website so that people at least have got they, they know this. Um, 
so we we have now designed our um, wills around um, I suppose protecting uh, both surrogates, intended parents, also donors. Um, we we do need to generally have a look at the the surrogacy agreement that is in place as well. Um, certainly, if, if people have gone through agencies, um, there particularly Canada and the US we're finding um, have actually um, and I've had a few of these now that they they actually provide clauses and they say, this is the clause that we want you to put in your will um, or even in your enduring powers of attorney um, to, to cover these things. So, so we have actually um, married all of that together so that people are now protected. Mm. Um, and I think, I guess, if we we'll go back, if people say, well, how come a baby that's born to a surrogate is going to potentially claim from her estate if um, she were to die? And really, the, some of it comes back to those succession laws that you know more about, but also because in family mm -hmm. law, we assume that when somebody gives birth to a baby that they are the legal parent. And until we yeah. do that parentage order, she's technically the legal parent and so is her partner. So, Correct. And that the intended parents who have not birthed the baby are not the legal parents until that parentage order is made, which means anyone can die in that situation and we would need to establish where does their estate go to and if they haven't sort of stipulated something in their will about this baby or the potential for that baby to exist through surrogacy then they may not actually be um, able to benefit from the, the right people or potentially are benefiting from the wrong people and mm. I know you did my will and my husband's will and we took the view that we wanted to stipulate who my kids are specifically by yes. naming them um, knowing that that way we were very clear about who we considered to be our children. And I think I talk about um, Darcy being the surrogacy baby, not being my child as far as my estate was concerned. Um, yes. And that is one way, I guess, that we can make sure everyone's covered. But like my will names Archie and Raph as my children. And yes. then my, my will de uh, determines where my estate will go um, keeping in mind that they are the two children that I've named. So what happens if I had a third child? Does that mean that the will um, is then not going to apply? Do I need to update it? So if you had a third child as a surrogate, we're saying? Well, let's say I had a third child and I kept this one. <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so the problem, yeah, well, if we're talking specifically your will, the problem that we have with your will at the moment is the fact that we did not just define your children as, because most people... Um, and most people will say, I, I like to leave the, the balance of my estate evenly between my children. Now, whoever appears as your child on your birth certificate then inherits equally, okay? So with yours, we have actually named your children. So the problem with that is we're being so specific about who your children are that if you then go and have another child, that child could potentially not be included. We would probably assume that that would not have been your intention um, and, and that, of course, you, you would have wanted to have included that child, but the law doesn't see it that way. So um, your will at the moment, it stipulates it would only be split between, sorry, husband, we, we would give it to you first, but then after him, um, that, that it would then be split equally between your two children and not your three children because we have not named said third child and i think your advice at the time was really just to make sure that we do update we review the wheel every couple of years we update it if we need to so that if we did have a child then we've kind of included as well 
Absolutely. And you either call me or drop me a line if you decide to go down that road. <laughs> yes, that's Definitely. right. Yeah. Yep. And, and again, I guess for the intended parents who haven't birthed the child, they may want to stipulate a particular child in their will or that there is a potential baby coming through surrogacy arrangement and that they need to be included as a beneficiary as well. Correct. Yeah, definitely. So we would we would um, we would stipulate the the children as we did with you, um, who exactly is a child. Um, sometimes people like to actually leave a gift to their surrogate child. So a lot of people do want to include that as well. Um, so so we would we would include that, but also be very specific about the fact that that is not actually um, somebody that you consider your your child. Um, so, and then also the um, whatever clauses, the, if there was an agency involved, we would also put those in, um, and they they can be um, they can be quite specific about it. And we've tried to sort of reword things, and oh, we don't really like that. Don't do the whole lawyer act, um, and they just send it back and go, no, nah, we we want it worded this way. Um, please redo it. So yeah, we we just um, we have to be very careful about the way we word it so that there's not unintended consequences depending on the um, the state or country that it's prepared in. The other thing I think about international surrogacy is that um, in some countries, not really um, ones that are doing it now, but children that might have been born through surrogacy five, six, seven years ago may only have one intended parent listed on the birth certificate. And they may, for example, in some countries like India and Thailand, they would name the surrogate as a birth parent and they would name the genetic father as a birth as a parent. And so the birth certificate as it stands still lists the surrogate and, and still lists the genetic father, but doesn't list the other father or the other the intended mother. So my advice mm. to people really in those circumstances is again to get your will sorted because you don't want the birth certificate to be the one the document that they rely on to establish where the estate should go or who the parents are and that the, getting the will done can be a cheaper and easier way than fighting it out in the family court um, as to who is a parent just sort out your will and you can then determine where your money goes to if you were to pass away absolutely and i certainly don't want to um pull down this rabbit hole too much but um, the, the scarier thing is um, people that die intestate, which means they die without a will altogether. So most people, I think the, the statistic is something like 45% of Australians don't actually have a will. Um, and, and if you have no will at all, it, it completely takes away um, the, the ability for, for you or, or anyone that's administering your estate to make any decisions at all because it just falls straight back to the Act. And the Act has a lovely little chart of, well, you decided you didn't want to do a will, so now we're going to tell you how your estate is divvied up. Um, nobody wants that. So, no, it does not generally end up with the government because there are so many people that it has to go to before we, we get to that. Um, but it still may not end up in the proportions that you even want it to go to. Um, so it's, yeah, I can't, I can't stress the importance enough, um, you know, whether you're going down the surrogacy journey or not, um, to just in general, have a will that stipulates what you want to happen to your, to your assets. So to that end, tell me, why can't we do a will that we bought at the post office for $22 then? Is, is that <laughs> something that we can do that that's going to cover everyone? 
Oh, Sarah, you should know how much lawyers hate that question. The post office will, Kristen. Um, so post office wills, what do they not allow for? Where do I even start? Um, so post office wills do not have, um, first of all, you, you've hardly got any options. So they will have a, you know, what's your name? What's your address? Pick one executor. I, I don't even know that they have a, um, they certainly don't explain to you that you can have multiple executors backup executors, all that sort of thing. Um, they don't allow for guardianship, which is, which is huge. So there is, um, certainly the ones I've seen recently did not have a guardianship clause in it, um, which is, is massive for any family. Um, you, you obviously want to be able to stipulate um, who your children go to if something happens to you. They don't allow for trusts either. So there's, it might say something along the lines of, you know, when do you want your children to take their, um, to take their uh, share of the estate? And most people will put 18, um, not really considering, well, most people these days do 23 or 25 and here are the reasons why. Um, because I, I know what I would have done with it at 18 and I wouldn't have much of it left now. Um, so the, the benefit of obviously sitting down with somebody that's got experience um, is that we can show you what all the other options are out there. One of the really, um, one of the things that pops up all the time, we, we often have people that will walk in and go, Hey, I just need a lawyer to witness this. I've written a post office will. Can you please witness it? And then I go through it and there will be, more often than not, people will put a clause in there about my superannuation is to go to this person, this person, this person. That is not legal. So superannuation does not form part of your will. You actually need to fill in a binding death nomination form with your respective super um, company to, to say where you want that to go. So if you never do that and you just put that in your will, it means nothing. But people who are doing these post office wills have got no idea that what they've done is not actually correct. Um, there's also other little, and I, I could go on forever because I hate them so much. Um, <laughs> but but um, even the way that people own property is another thing that comes up a lot. Um, if I, and I don't, you may know, and I'd hope you would know, but most people, um, if I said to you, you know, how do you own your property with your husband? People will go, well, jointly. And I'm like, well, hang on. Are, are you joint proprietors or do you own it as tenants in common and you've got 50% each? And people go, uh, I don't know. The implications of the difference between those two things are massive. Um, and it can mean the difference between it going to your partner or not, particularly in de facto relationships. And, and if you've got children from other marriages, the consequences of not preparing your will to allow for understanding that question um, can be just catastrophic. Um, and so your first family um, and, and children certainly under, under that first marriage or relationship may end up with nothing because the house was not owned the way you thought it was. Mm, that's so important. And thank you for talking about that. I think, um, I think it really just um, says that if you're going to invest in surrogacy, then part of that has to be will planning. Um, to cover everyone because the, if you were to die then it's not you that has to deal with the fallout if those things are not in order and really doing a will and estate planning and thinking this through is is a favor to everyone that's left behind if you were to die it's for your kids and for your family oh, to definitely. 
certainly my, my catchphrase for this sort of thing all the time is wills. We, we don't promote wills so that the person who makes it, I mean, yes, of course it benefits you, but you're not making a will for you. You're making a will for the people that you leave behind. That's amazing. What I'm going to do is on the post, I'm going to link uh, to your website and to the surrogacy ebook that you publish and also your Instagram at overnight automatic so that people can find you and follow you. And uh, if they've got any questions, how do they find you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my my contact details are obviously um, on the website, um, but I'm more than happy for you to even um, contact me through our Facebook page. Just shoot me through a message. I'm generally the one that will respond um, to you pretty quickly. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm always happy to, to talk to anyone about, um, about estate planning, which I love. Um, you can even book a chat on our website. So, Thank you. Thanks, Adele. Thank you for listening to the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. If you are looking for more information, you can find it on the blog. Listen to more podcast episodes at sarahjefford.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at sarah at sarahjefford.com.